As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This North Korean propaganda music is fire. Yep, confirmed. Just gets me amped to do things. It gets me amped. This is when it gets good. There's something about North Korean or just Soviet Union style propaganda music that I don't know. It really just gets you going. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Like these communist totalitarian regimes, they really do create the best propaganda. <laughs> Definitely. Like um, there's there is um something really truly beautiful about the Soviet national anthem. <laughs> <laughs> like it, it, listen, I fucking hate the Soviet Union, but I'm saying they have a beautiful national anthem. And I think almost everyone agrees upon that. Uh, I think that might be up for debate, but I like the song. I think it's pretty neat. Maybe we should start the show, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should. Start. Okay, what's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. And uh, this will be a North Korea-themed episode if you haven't guessed already with the title and the north korean propaganda music that was in the beginning of it but i really enjoy like everyone people who are repeat listeners obviously know that i have a thing for like nationalist propaganda music i'm super fascinated by it and just like the concept of making uh nationalistic type music to create unity <laughs> it's super it's just really interesting you couldn't be farther from it either, and it's funny that you enjoy the, the theme song so much. For me, I feel like it's like um, when I was a kid, I used to watch cartoons and love the uh, love the uh, bad guy music because it was always the coolest and like most aggressive music. So maybe there's a little bit of that going on there, you know, like all of these despotic nations and like you know backwards countries have just banger songs behind them for some reason because that's their only saving grace. <laughs> Well, you know, the to uh, pacify the entire population, you, you really do have to have those strong symbols. Music, music being one of them, but even beyond just Soviet communist style, it, it's this it sounds like Soviet music. You know, if someone said that was a Soviet song from the Soviet Union, I would be like, oh yeah, sure, it sounds like it. Um, but it's North Korea, and and you know, they adopted many. They basically adopted, um, you know, Soviet Union. Um, art, uniforms, military technology, you know, everything. And uh, you know, to this day, if you look at like a North Korean officer, they look like they're out of the Soviet Union. Yep. So It's probably because um, those uniforms are still from the Soviet Union. Yeah, their <laughs> uniforms are still from the Soviet Union. But, yeah. you know, not only do I find that interesting, I find the ethnic nationalist music 
super fascinating as well. You know, when we broke down the um, the different uh, music videos that were coming out of uh, the Yugoslavian wars, that is really, really interesting too. The fact that they like all were, um, there's like a battle of music is interesting. Um, another one is like this, you ever see the, I, I showed you this, the Syrian, um, the pro-Assad music. Oh yeah, it's hilarious. And especially it's when hilarious. you watch it with like the um, uh, auto-generated like subtitles. Just like yeah. what they're singing about is just fucking hilarious. It's like it's like God loves God loves Syria, um, but it's really it's honestly on my like a gym playlist of mine. <laughs> it gets me pumped up. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, my pro Assad fix is coming in. Um, there's like a mashup online of like the Syrian military to that. Mm-hmm. That's just like you're just like, oh man, this is fucking awesome. It's fucking awesome. I want to join the Syrian military. <laughs> yeah, it's like reminiscent of like Team America World Police, except yeah. it's not like a parody. They're like serious. <laughs> I know. But it's, it's, um, it goes back to like now. A lot of the, here's what like a lot of like right wingers are complaining about in the, in the, in, in the US is that our military is going soft and stuff and it's, it's, uh, catering too much to like, um, not to traditional hyper-masculine people who you'd want in the military. It's kind of catering towards like a larger demographic. So it's like nerfed up the advertisement. Someone like did a mashup between um, like a U.S. military recruitment commercial and then a Russian one. And mm-hmm. the Russian one's just like this badass guy who's like, like running and like he's like shooting guns with a sniper rifle. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's the, the it's like tanks and explosions it's like, and it's shit. like die for your country, fight for your country. And then the American <laughs> one's like, hi, this is a story about a girl from the Midwest or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, we're not getting, we got to get into the episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so we're talking about North Korea today. Uh, again, this is going to be part of our series on North Korea. And the focus is um, we're going to be talking about the rise of Kim Il-sung today. Now, this will be part of, I think, the following episode. Danny, can you elaborate a little bit more about what we're going to do in our follow-up episode so we can kind of just explain how we're going to do this? Yeah, absolutely. So so today we're going to be talking about Kim Il-sung. Uh, and, you know, he's obviously the, the first leader of North Korea. Uh, and he's the guy uh, that represents the North. What we'd like to do is we'd like to follow up in another episode with uh, Syngman Rhee who was uh, that first leader uh, down in South Korea around the same time, uh, just to kind of juxtapose the two, compare and contrast. And I think that'll be a really nice way for us to kind of um, set up the actual Korean War, which we've been building up to over the last uh, couple of episodes. So I think this is going to be a fun um, you know, intro so that you can think of this as like you know player one, and then we'll do player two tomorrow. Uh, yeah, that's time. a good analogy. So um, as part of the research for this, I was actually looking at North Korean travel websites. And, um, you know, interestingly enough, you can you can travel to North Korea. You know, there there's plenty of people who do. It's not recommended, obviously. Like but, Dennis Rodman. Um, <laughs> yeah, Dennis Rodman. Um, I don't know if you know who Michael Malice is. He's like a writer and comedian. Um, he wrote a book on um, Kim, he wrote a book on Kim Jong um, Il called Dear Reader, which is really good. Um, he spent, I think, a couple of months in Korea while writing that book. You can travel there. And, um, you know, you'll find something interesting where um, on the on the travel sites, the one I looked at was on uh, NorthKoreaTravel.com. 
There's a disclaimer saying, please note that leaders, President Kim Il-sung, Chairman Kim Jong-il, and Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un are respected in the DPRK. Travelers should under no circumstances show any signs of disrespect to them, the regime, or the DPRK. You will be sent more specific information regarding this before traveling to North Korea. So um, this reminds us of the the very tragic story of Otto Wambier. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Wambier. Wambier. Um, Wambier. The American student who was arrested for stealing a portrait of... I'm not sure if it was a portrait or if it was just like a political slogan of uh, that like red Kim Il-sung. I think it would, may have been a portrait. I forget the exact piece he took, but it was, a you know. He allegedly took something. He took, he took something and he was going to take it home and probably shouldn't have done that. But when we're young, we do stupid stuff. Like I can totally see myself doing something like that when I was in my early 20s. I got a Kim Il-sung poster. Like I think I probably would have been tempted Shit, to do I, that. I might be tempted to do it today. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like if I went to um, North Korea and, and, you know, you can score like a little memorabilia or something like that. That's, that's, that's wild. I, yeah, I, I totally, because I would go to North Korea if the opportunity arose. And I definitely would be tempted to steal something. Um, but I wouldn't, obviously, because that would just, I wouldn't want to suffer the consequences and, this poor kid, you know, he was sentenced to 15 years of imprisonment with hard labor. And, you know, while imprisoned, he was most, I mean, he was neglected and, and, not, and most likely he was tortured to the point when um, Trump got him back to America. He unfortunately died very soon after as a result of, um, I think he died of like kidney failure and, and like pneumonia. Yeah, he was in bad and, shape. Uh, he, mm-hmm. he was just in really bad shape uh, just from the terrible prisons. I don't know how far they went as far as torturing him. They, it seems like they, they that they did if he died um, that quickly. But, um, but you know, so if you travel to North, the point is if you travel to North Korea and you disrespect their histories or their customs, you will be severely punished. So don't do that. No matter how cool some memorabilia would be. Um, but yeah, who is Kim Il-sung? So let's get to the point. He is the grandfather of the current supreme leader of North Korea, uh, Kim Jong-un. He is the founder of the current regime. He's officially known as the great leader. Um, he's also called the eternal president, father chairman, great chairman. Um, the heavenly one is my favorite. And <laughs> yeah. um, it's, you know, supreme leader is kind of like a name that a lot of communist uh, countries, you know, call their, their uh head guy on top, you know, the guy right. who's liked by everyone. So, um, but I'm sure there's other titles that I don't know about. Oh, there's and, definitely um, more. <laughs> yeah. As a, as a figure in North Korea, he transcends just being the founder of the nation. He is a deity, basically. I think it's fair to call him that he's, he's seen as a de- deity. And, um, you know, there's, there's tens of thousands of statues of, uh, of Kim across North Korea. Um, Displaying portraits of Kim, it, you know, it's mandatory uh, within households and buildings. Um, his origin story and his accomplishments are greatly exaggerated, but you know, he's presented as this um, paternal figure, like this, this paternal and this maternal, like uh, this like fatherly and motherly figure at the same time. 
You know, right. he's very like, androgynous because he's, he's yeah. a deity, right? Yeah. And this is actually uh, that that's part and parcel with you know the episode that we had on the origins of Korea, you know, where we have that origin story, the very mythical origin story of Dongun, who was apparently the product of a god and a m- woman bear thing. So he's man bear god king, man bear <laughs> god king, and and he you know, is seen much in the same way. And fun fact, you know, Kim Il-sung actually believed that Dongun wasn't just a mythical person, like a legend, but that he was real. So much so that he goes and, like, searches for the the remains of Dongun. And apparently he found them, and now there's this, you know, temple that's erected to it. It's like a step pyramid that they built. Uh, looks like something, you know, looks like something super old, but it's, you know, it's pretty new. And, you know, he uses that as a way to say, like, oh, no, this this person was real. And, like, we're, we're like, the same. <laughs> you know, like, he makes that, he draws that comparison um, to Don Gun. Um, and, and there's a bunch of stuff about his history and his origin story that we'll talk about later that, you know, also draws those parallels and makes those connections. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. Yeah, but, you know, it sounds a lot like, um, kind of sounds a lot like the Japanese Empire. And, you know, the more that we do these this series, the more I feel find the episodes that we did on the the you know Japanese nationalism like extremely relevant to this one so um, I think listening to those episodes if you want uh, more insight on, on this time period but um the Empire Japanese Empire is a descendant of the you know the Sun goddess now um, he, not only is he you know portrayed as this guy who nurtures people in all aspects of life so like you know food and shelter and you know everything that you have is due to the the uh, dear leader the eternal leader um he's also who he also creates order so um north korean institutional documents including the constitution labor laws land laws um even academic essays were allegedly authored by kim highly doubtful yeah, he wrote everything. <laughs> we'll get into he's that like, later. Um, he's like Hamilton. Um, <laughs> no, no, he's not. <laughs> he, so, so basically, I, I bet the I bet they have a banger play like like Hamilton. Mm. <laughs> banger, I'm sure they some do banger ass plays. And and uh, have you seen Hamilton? Uh, I haven't, but you know, I I, I know what it's about. I uh, it would be that. hilarious to see uh, like a a Hamilton style play about the North Korean leadership and like how they're all rappers or something. What, what's the guy's <laughs> name again? Emmanuel. Uh, 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 um, I can't think of his name. Lin-Manuel Miranda. Lin, yeah. My, my fiance loves that guy so much that um, she like the Hamilton soundtrack is on 24 seven in my house. <laughs> and it's been on for like two years or three years at this point, <laughs> or like she, it's like she listens to it 24 seven, but yeah, it would be awesome if he wrote a North Korean style play. It'd be cool if it was set to the tune of like a K-pop. You know, like, he got he got commissioned to do that. That would be the most <laughs> hilarious thing in the world. He did kind of embarrass himself by doing a song about on a January sixth committee, but the, the, he was extremely talented. Getting way too off point right now. Um, so not only does he so um, wrote every document important in North Korea, basically. Um, so now newspapers, magazines, textbooks, um, they all include the words instruction from Kim. So, you know, if he doesn't directly write it, then it's just instructed directly from him. 
Um, and you know what's really interesting about uh, Kim Il Sung is that most people feel pretty good about him. Like he's like George Washington. There was a poll that I that I saw that seventy five percent of North Korean refugees in South Korea they still retain affection for their great leader Kim Il Sung. So, I mean, we were actually briefly ta- talking about this our last episode, how a lot of North Korean refugees have a really hard time um, assimilating into South Korea just because they're just completely different countries. And, you know, a lot of North Korean refugees may not have the skills um, to, you know, to, to uh, thrive in, you know, the South Korean dynamic economy. Uh, but a lot of them still, help, you know, they leave for a reason because it's a totalitarian nightmare. But you know, a lot of them have great affection for, at the very least, Kim Il-sung. Um, you know, the propaganda is that strong. And, you know, what I find really interesting is that even after death, his body has been preserved for all eternity at the presidential palace in Pyongyang. And, um, you know, his authority remains enshrined through the title Eternal President, which means Kim Il-sung's etern- eternal authority serves to justify Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un's regime. So his successor's regimes, his grand, his, um, his son and his grandson's regime. And um, because of that, you know, this, this is dynastic succession between supreme leaders. So, you know, you can kind of label the North Korean state of, of uh, uh, the current regime of, you know, the three leaders, um, Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un, the current leader, as a continuation of, of the dynastic monarchy that has existed in Korea prior to the annexation of Japan. In fact, the the power of Kim was a lot greater than a traditional monarchy. Um, but the, the reality is, he, you know, he he is just kind of another communist dictator that is comparable to you know Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, Ceausescu. Um, you know, who created a totalitarian regime. Yeah, I find that very, very fascinating comparison, Henry, because I, I think there's definitely a lot of ways in which uh, the North Korean propaganda machine that was set up by Kim Il-sung draws that comparison and, and tries to, you know, uh, create a new dynasty in that respect. Uh, it's funny, we'll, we'll talk about Syngman Rhee in a, in a future episode, but what's kind of hilarious about that is that Syngman Rhee actually does descend from um, Joseon emperors and Joseon kings. He's like 16 times removed or something like that. So it's it's funny that, that Kim Il-sung tries so hard to manufacture that type of a link and manufacture that authority by calling back to, you know, Korean origin stories and history and and pseudo history and yeah. kind of wrapping it all into one to create this air of legitimacy, legitimacy for himself. Uh, and it's just funny that his, his, uh, counterpart, the, his opponent really in the Korean war actually does have that, uh, that link, you know? So, yeah, but, but don't get confused. His opponent was not a great guy either. No, no, not at all. He was, not terrible. He was not, he was not like the yin, the yin, the yin to uh, like the good versus the evil. Like both of these guys were scum, and both of these guys were complete scumbags. <laughs> They're very similar, and and we'll and we'll get into uh, into this. They're both both basically. Yeah, you said it earlier. They're both proxies. Um, one being a U.S. proxy, one being a Soviet proxy who went to war. Now, it's really um, hard to nail down 
who um, Kim Il-sung really was. Because you obviously just, you can't take North Korean propaganda at face value at all. It is, um, you know, it's known that he was born um, April 15th, 1912 in the city of Pyongyang with the name uh, Kim Sung-joo. So he wasn't born Kim Il-sung, he was born Kim Sung-joo. That was his name when he was born. And, um, you know, to this day, his childhood home is uh, a shrine that's dedicated to his parents and him and his parents. Now, his parents were Christian activists and they belonged to the first generation of Koreans to uh, receive a modern Western style education. Um, They were by no means wealthy, but, you know, they were slightly better off than most people at the time. Um, You know, North, I think in, in North Korean history, they were, they were, you know, from very, very humble origins. Um, you know, it, it's kind of funny because um, North Korean historians, they basically reinvent Kim Il-sung's family history, making his parents into these major players in the, in the underground resistance against Japan. Because by the time that uh, Kim Il-sung had been born, the, Jap- the Japanese had already been, you know, they had annexed Korea two years prior in 1910. And, and basically they were the... You know, they were meddling in Jap in Korean politics for about 15, 20 years prior to that very heavily uh, during the Sino-Japanese War. Um, even before that, they had assassinated their monarchy. So, you know, there was a long... We, we, act, we did an entire episode last week about just the Japanese uh, atrocities and the meddling and just how kind of brutal the occupation was in Korea from the Japanese. Now... Um, um, if you go further back into his family tree, Kim's great great grandfather, Kim Ung Woo, was reported to have led a counterattack against the USS Sherman in 1866. That's right. Uh, so uh, we talked about this uh, kind of briefly in uh, one of our past episodes, but I'll, I'll give you a, a quick run through of that. Um, situation, uh, just in case you didn't get a chance to listen to it. So in 1866, uh, there was this uh, American merchant ship, and it was called the General Sherman. And it basically set out to try and open up trade with Korea, uh, because at the time, uh, the Joseon Kingdom had, uh, and that was the kingdom that was ruling uh, Korea at the time, had locked itself down, basically to prevent colonial powers from taking over the country, uh, much like how Japan did the same thing. Uh, pre-Meiji. So you can think of this as like a quasi-gunboat diplomacy, uh, minus the guns. And apparently the story is kind of long and complicated, but the the gist of it is that they had a bit of a a miscommunication with the Koreans at the time. And the USS uh, Sherman ends up sailing up the river and gets stranded kind of near Pyongyang. And the Koreans were inhabiting it and they told them to leave uh, and the result was that the Americans end up killing four Koreans and kidnapping a military officer. And they basically fought for four days straight. Uh, and eventually, uh, some Korean ships end up lighting the General Sherman on fire and like burning it to the, you know, burning it down basically. And then that, you know, spins off what was a pretty interesting, um, you know, a uh, fight between the U.S. and Korea uh, pre the Korean War. Uh, so because in 1871, uh, the U.S., you know, goes over to Gangwa Island 
and they end up killing 243 Koreans, uh, and then they eventually withdrew, which I think is a pretty interesting story because I didn't even know that we had been involved in such a fight or a skirmish uh, with the Koreans before that. Um, but w what's kind of important about the story is that the lighting that ship on fire is used by North Korea propaganda later as a way to show that, you know, like Koreans don't fuck around uh, and they, they stand up for themselves. And, you know, this is kind of a pretext for the USS Pueblo incident in 1968. Uh, but we'll cover that at another time uh, when we're actually talking about the war itself. Yeah, man, I had no idea. Before we started doing this series, I had no idea that happened, that there was a, there was um an event like that in Korea where there was an actual uh, U.S. warship that killed over 200 Koreans. I had zero, I had no idea that happened before we started doing this series. You kind of like um, think that all the U.S. interventions in the world have happened since Cold War started. You know, it's kind of the perception of a lot of people. But then you go back and you're like, man, this goes back to like the Barbary Pirates. It's always been imperial. Um, this story is made up. Not the uh, Sherman incident. That was real. But the part about his grandfather being a part of it is not uh, most likely not real. You know, um, there's there's really there's just no proof that his grandfather was involved in this at all. And, um, you know, what it is, it's just another attempt to strengthen Kim's family tradition as fighters against imperialism, because that's what that's what a lot of these communist movements were and um, that, that have developed in Asia um, and just around the world. They were they were anti-imperial movements like, you know, the the communist movements that really picked up steam in China um, in Vietnam they were they were at the heart this anti-imperialist anti-anti-colonial movements um, that you know were I mean that that's what gave them legitimacy to the people you know the fact that they were bulwarks against um, the Japanese now in any case um, this family does go into exile in 1920 into Manchuria so. We're not exactly sure if they went into exile because of Japanese oppression. Could have been a voluntary move. We don't really know. You know, there could have been famine. There could have been poverty. I think that is left to interpretation. I don't. I. I think there's a debate if he had actually his family was actually forced to move by the Japanese. Totally. Um, yeah. Now, his family were, were Presbyterian, and allegedly they might have been moved to do like Christian miss, missions or whatever. Or fight the Japanese. There's also, like you said, the, the bit about, you know, there was a lot of famine and hunger in the time. So maybe they just moved for economic reasons or yeah. all the it, reasons. It's totally hazy. Yeah. And Manchuria is like, you know, the, there's a reason why the Japanese invaded Manchuria. Because it was like very rich with natural resources and stuff like that. Now, um, you know, the, the primary reason that um, the North Korean government is able to get away with a lot of these crazy stories about Kim was because that Kim left Korea as a child and lived in China because Manchuria is, you know, technically part of China. Um, therefore nobody could really corroborate or deny any of these stories. So the fact that he didn't have like a childhood on paper, you can just leave everything up to interpretation because he wasn't, he wasn't, he spent the majority of his life in, in China. So you just, you know, you were able to be uh, really creative with his backstory. And that's where you're getting all these, like, you know, just these crazy fucking legends. 
Um, now, Kim's first contact with communism came in 1929 when he uh, when he joined a communist youth group in Manchuria. In Manchuria. Uh, North Korean propaganda. It says that you know he was ahead of all Korean communists by age 14. Now, I did some I, would, I did some research and I had some notes before on like the history of communism in Korea. Um, I don't know, it got a little bit too long and too confusing, so I didn't want to get too far into it. But right, there was even, a communist. even the age is a little weird too because I, I was here yeah. in 17 too, so all of this information is so crazy. Yeah, so let, I'll just say that there was like a, a history of uh, of, of uh, communism in Korea. Um, and a lot of it came from Soviet, uh, Korean Soviets. So Koreans who were uh, either migrated to Russia or some places in the Soviet Union, and then they would get in contact with the Comintern or with you know Soviet Union, um, you know Communist International type guys, people who would train them in communism and then send them back to Korea to to make you know political um, political organizations. Um, and, you know, the Japanese would brutally uh, you know, kind of hunt these groups down. A lot of these communist groups in Korea, they also became rivals with each other. Um, it, it, it's very similar to how these groups were created in China with, um, you know, the Soviets. You, you know, com- com- communist, com- the common turn was like the communist international part of the government where, you know, they were devoted to worldwide communism. So they would help. And um, with countries like China, Korea... Uh, create these political organizations because um, what ends up really happening with a lot of these countries is that these communist parties become the most organized political group. They become the best organized at just creating propaganda, at um, creating uh, just, you know, the things to navigate the political system to actually make change. Like they're very successful. And even non-communist groups they they actually work with the communist groups just for that very reason because like they'll be like oh we need to get some communists in here to help us with our organizations so that's like a theme, that's a theme that you see throughout Korea and China but the history of communism in Korea it's it is long and it has to, it, there's a lot of just um it's root it's it's riddled with this like rivalries within the communist movement there and then it's also uh riddled with just like you know the Japanese kind of hunted them down um. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. 
You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Ink Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Ink Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Now, according to uh, North Korean government sources, Kim Il-jung, he joins the anti-Japanese resistance at the age of 14. And then in 1931, he became a member of the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. And there was a large, you know, he, it was, he joined the CCP because the CCP was actively resisting the Japanese. And, um, you know, he, he took this step right, right for Japan-occupied Manchuria following the, uh, the, the Mukden incident. Right. Um, and and b- before you talk about Manchuria, I do want to flesh this out a bit because I found it pretty interesting. Um, so, uh, you know, as you've been saying early on as a Kim, um, as a kid, basically he, he didn't live in Korea, but for a short period of time, he did attend a Korean military academy, but he ends up quitting like a year later, uh, because he, uh, allegedly he thought their methods were outdated. Probably more likely he was just a lazy kid, right? Um, and later on, he goes to school in China, uh, and that's where he spends the, the rest of his life right before he comes back. Uh, and he gets super into communism, as you said. Now, I read that he was 17 uh, when he joined that Marxist group, but I guess, you know, it again, none of this shit is verifiable, right? So we don't know. <laughs> um, but in, in any case, he was young, uh, and he was the youngest member of that uh, Marxist group. And he ends up getting caught like three weeks after he joined, and, and he gets arrested and spends a few months in jail. Um, flash forward a bit in 31, you know, still a young man, you know, Kim joins the Communist Party of China, right? And uh, along with those other anti-Japanese guerrilla groups. And, you know, I, I really want to highlight this because, again, Kim spent the majority of his life by the time he got back to Korea in China. And why I want to point this out so strongly is that what's interesting about it is that his Korean sucked. And to make matters worse, he only had like eight years of education, so he wasn't exactly very articulate and his handlers had to coach him a lot just to like read a speech, uh, which of course all the speeches were written for him. Um, but, you know, don't ask North Korean propaganda that he wrote everything, right? Um, so setting aside that he was an anti-Japanese guerrilla fighter and like a really big communist, I actually find it kind of funny that the Soviets end up picking him to lead North Korea I mean, like, think about it. The, the guy could barely read and speak in Korean. And he spent most of his life outside of Korea. It would be like if, if you know, for, for, for you know, new listeners here, I'm, I'm, I'm Puerto Rican and Palestinian, right? But I was, I was born and raised here in the States. Uh, and, you know, it, it would be like if, if Palestine became a nation, like through some two-state solution... And like the CIA taps me and, and, and says like, hey, we want you to go be the president of Palestine, <laughs> right? It's like, uh, I sure as hell have more formal education than Kim did. And I can definitely read and, you know, read and write a speech just fine on my own. But I don't speak Arabic and I've never been to Palestine, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's just weird, you know, that they end up choosing him. And he wasn't even the highest ranking person among the anti-Japanese guerrillas that were available, and he wasn't even their first pick. So there, there was this guy named Cho Man Sik, 
um, that the Soviets initially wanted to like head up North Korea, but he ends up refusing uh, to support a UN-backed trusteeship of Korea, which is basically the same thing that happened in Germany, uh, where different world powers would take um, control over parts of Korea until you know they're ready to do their own thing. So North Korea was run by the Soviets and South Korea by the West. Um, and of course, uh, this guy, Cho Man Sik, he wasn't, he wasn't down with that idea. So they couldn't, they didn't pick him. I guess the point that I'm trying to make here is that the Soviets basically built this guy up from nothing, which saying that out loud actually makes a lot of sense because it would be much easier to control someone with such a blank slate, but boy, were they wrong. Well, I, I think that's exactly why, because he, well, we're going to get into this, but he built strong contact with the Soviet Union later on in his life with, with uh, mm -hmm. the Red Army. He serves in the Red Army. Um, and I think just through his political connections, um, through, through serving in World War II, and uh, the fact that he was a blank slate made him an attractive person where they can create this backstory and create this kind of legendary mythical because uh, uh, a lot of the propaganda that comes out was propaganda just from the Soviet Union like the Soviet Union helped write all that right. and, and create mm -hmm. all that so I think they saw the value in him having this mysterious past of not um, you know having like childhood roots anywhere so you can kind of just mm -hmm. fill in that gap you know um, if you still kind of a just, weird, if pick, I don't though. know anything about you, like let's just say I know nothing about you from the age of like before you were eighteen years old. I know nothing about your like your life in high school, nothing mm -hmm. about your life in um in um when you were growing up. I can like make up some crazy backstory. Like I was a star quarterback. I was a star quarterback. I was a star point guard. I was uh, a, I threw ninety five miles per hour. You know, mm -hmm. it's like kind of like that those kids who like. Um, who um, the new kid in make, school who they make who, lies who about like the girls mm -hmm. they slept with when they went to camp mm -hmm. they're like well you know <laughs> when I went to camp I'll tell you I had like five girlfriends <laughs> you know what I mean you, ever, yeah. you remember that when you're younger they'd be like that kid who'd be like when I went to camp I had like eight girlfriends <laughs> you wouldn't know any of it though and we just decided to I was such a player I didn't know any camp kids but I certainly knew a bunch of new kids to school who would come in and like tell tall tales about, you know, how cool and popular and, like, you know, perfect they were uh, in their old school. And, like, you can't, like, you can't verify that. So you just either Then you go back to the old school. It's like nobody knew who that guy was. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> not saying that high school popularity is important. I'm just saying, you know, because it's not really. But it's it's um it's kind of that same spirit. Like, he hasn't, there's, mm -hmm. nothing, there's nothing to really trace back. Uh, so you can right. kind of make this grand story about him, but, mm -hmm. um, but well, I want to talk. In Kim's a case, bit. he didn't even go to high school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to talk about um, Manchuria for a second because I, I think it's important and it's an interesting story. Um, mm -hmm. Now, the the Mukden incident. This was a false flag. It's false flag. But no, but this is a real false flag that was performed by the Japanese. That's been proven. You know, as Japanese, the big imperial prize for the Japan as they were on their conquest um, of uh, becoming this imperial power was Manchuria um, because of the natural resources. Also because of um, the size of it, Japan's, um, if you look at like the Japanese reasons for like expanding and, and, you know, wanting to conquer all these places was because their population at that time was growing at a very fast rate. Japan had always been a very populous country. Tokyo was the biggest city in the world. 
since the 1600s or maybe maybe even before. Tokyo, Tokyo had been the largest city in the world for a very long time, for like 300 years. Um, now, they wanted to um, be able to have that land to just to support their population, their rapid population growth and build industry. Um, you know, it's funny because the Japanese actually, the majority of like the industrial centers in Korea were actually in North Korea. Um, that's why they were kind of set on fire during the war, which we'll get into, uh, because the Japanese built all that industry now. Um, but that's getting too far, of course, right now. So they set up a pretext for invading Manchuria. Uh, the way they do this is that they, um, so af- after the Russia, the Russo-Japanese War, the Japanese acquired this railroad through uh, the Laidong Peninsula near Korea. And this railroad became one of Japan's most economically important assets of the continent. So a Japanese lieutenant, and this is really interesting, without the consent from his government. So the military was completely act- like a faction of the military was acting on its own. So this wasn't coming from, like, Tokyo. This was the military who just did this. Because the, the Japanese politics at the time, there was a lot of um, factions and assassinations and, like, people who hated each other within the government. Government by assassination is what this is what they were called. So, like, the military would just operate completely independent of what lawmakers would say. Like, they was just, it was crazy. Like, they, the military coups would happen all the time. It was just a fucking ridiculous time in history um of how the you know the, the kind of government splintered off between the military and these different waves but um so the japanese gov- the japanese military they staged this on their own and um this japanese lieutenant he de- he he detonates a very small quantity of dynamite close to a railway line owned by this japanese um railway and it's funny because this explosion was so weak that it failed to destroy the track. And then the train actually passes over it a couple of minutes later. So it's like a, basically a dud. It's like a very minor explosion. No one gets hurt. There's br- virtually no damage at all. The train doesn't even stop. The train doesn't even stop. Like the train just goes over it. And the Japanese, this gets into the Japanese press. And it's like, Chinese dissidents are coming. They're they're. They're stealing our possessions. They're going to destroy our, our enterprises that we've built up in Machari and our investments. And this just, um, you know, this, this turns into the Japanese press. The Chinese were, you know, doing terror attacks on Japanese targets. And um, this justifies, like, the full invasion of Manchuria. So, um, you know, this leads to the occupation of Manchuria and then them setting up their, their puppet state of Manchuko. Um, and then, um, you know, in 1935, uh, the, you know, the 23-year-old Kim, he joins the guerrilla faction ran, ran by the CCP faction of the resistance because, you know, there's, there's two factions of primary factions of the Chinese resistance during this time period. There's the, uh, the Kuomintang and then there's also the CCP, the Nat- Chinese nationalist um, you know, the Chinese communists were, they were more, uh, how should I say this? Um, I guess they were like doing a better job resisting the Japanese. Um, I guess that's the best way to say it. Um, so they called, um, the, uh, you know, this, this was called the, um, the Northeast Anti-Japanese United Army. 
So um, a large part of this unit in Manchuria, they're actually, the majority of them are Koreans. So according to the uh, Bruce Cummings book that you know, we've been read- I've been reading, you've been reading uh, a lot for the prep of this show, um, you know, most of these, most of the Chinese resistance in Manchuria were Koreans. And because of that, if you look down in the Korean War, there, there's all these reports in the beginning of the wars, like of the American soldiers saying, man, these guys are fucking tough. These guys are tough soldiers. Like these guys are, they're, they're fearless. They know, like they know how to shoot. You know, they're, they're just, they're not, this is not like some, some um, pickup, like farmer army. These are professionals. And the reason why they were professionals is because they were war veterans. They were war veterans in Manchuria who were already fighting the Japanese. So his superior officer, his name was uh, Wee Zingmin, had high contacts in the CCP. And then he takes Kim under his wing. And this is where you get that name change. So his name changes to Kim Il-sung at this time. So, Kim Sung, he's born Kim Sung Jo. Now he's Kim um, Kim Il Sung. We, we we don't know exactly what happens here. Like I I don't know. Maybe there is a definitive uh, history of what happened, but to me, it's kind of like a mystery of what of what actually happened in this in this period. Because then it goes back to like the 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 mystery and the blank slate of everything. Like was this guy just like some random guy that they found? Um, now, w- one of the big debates about Kim Il-sung's past is, was he really Kim Sung-ju? So, and this is like um, I mean, a very sensitive is- issue because it touches on the history of resistance against the, the Japanese and, uh, you know, Kim's supposed history as an anti-Japanese uh, leader. And, you know, him being an anti-Japanese leader played the probably the most vital role in justifying his his rise to power of of in North Korea. Now, one of the more frequently mentioned achievements is um this um this battle that takes place in 1937. It's called the Bokeonbo battle. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Maybe I'm not. Bokeonbo battle. Does that sound right? I have it written down. Sounds sounds about right. <laughs> okay. Bokeonbo battle. So um, during this battle, Kim supposedly, he leads this resistance to victory over this heavily fortified Japanese police force. And, um, you know, this, this event is recorded in, in history as like this great victory. It gives Koreans hope. It was a great achievement. Now, um, you know, it, it, what this served as it it served as Kim's public debut as a resistance hero, and um, the thing is though is that this story may have been heavily uh, just crafted uh, by the Soviet Union. So there is this um, Soviet commander. His name was uh, uh, Romanenko, um, and uh, Romanenko, you know, he introduced the people uh, of North Korea to Kim Il Sung. So he didn't introduce him to Kim Sung-ju. They, he introduced this guy as Kim Il-sung. Therefore, some people claim that Kim Il-sung was an alias used by King Sung-ju for his resistance activities, while others believe that 
Um, you know, Kim, Kim Sung-joo was just pretending to be Kim Il-sung. So the claim is that Kim Sung-joo stole Kim Il-sung's identity. <laughs> that's yeah. that's the, you know what some people theorize, that the guy that we know is Kim Il-sung was just, it was somebody else. <laughs> and somebody stole his identity. And yep. that's, that's, uh, that's there, the best a- possibility. <laughs> There's honestly a it's million like Final Fantasy about... VII. Never play that game. Yeah. You ever? Yeah, or, I don't know. That's that's the first thing I think of when I think of stolen identities. Um, <laughs> that video. Totally. Game. I mean, there's like a million stories about Kim's name uh, that pop up, and you know, just like you, man, I'm, I'm having a hard time figuring out which is accurate, and and more importantly than that, I'm trying. I'm having a hard time figuring out which stories are even important, right? Uh, and, and I think the one that we go on, because it's just easiest to, and the one that most historians agree on, regardless of the implication, is that the dude that you see in the pictures, right, the guy who was North Korea's first leader, was born with the name Kim Song-ju. I mean, even he wrote about it himself. So you know, I, don't, I don't think that part is contested particularly, but there are some questions, you know. And if you take the man on his word, he wrote a bit about how he got the name in an autobiography called With the Century, which he wrote two years before his death. And and I'm doing heavy air quotes here on autobiography and wrote because by this time he was a full-on god king and, yeah, who knows what was on his mind and who knows who even wrote it, you know? So... So apparently, you know, he wrote himself in that in that book with the century that he apparently had three names, not just two. So it's it gets even more complicated than it needs to be. So apparently, his fr- so he's his friends start calling him by a name Han Byol, and that name roughly translates to one star. And then later, his communist friends start calling him Il Sung which means becomes the sun. And of course, you know, there, there's the given name that he has, which is Song Ju. And according to him, apparently he didn't like being called by different names and he didn't like being compared to a star uh, when he was young, but that apparently it's stuck. And that's the story that he goes by. You know, but the book, but that's, that's coming from the book that he himself wrote. And you'd be foolish to take that at face value, right? This is the guy who wrote the playbook on North Korean propaganda when he created the North Korean Federation of Literature and Art. And he did this early on after taking over North Korea. And it was basically the propaganda machine of North Korea created by Kim to control the narrative and to paint him into this god king that he eventually becomes. And so... When you, when you think about it, you know, the, the name Il-sung, as you pointed out, was attributed to a respected anti-Japanese freedom fighter and guerrilla fighter, right? That's the one that, that um, the Soviets introduced people to. And I also read a story about how it was the name of his uncle, who was a commander in, in some guerrilla force, and that he assumed that name after his uncle died, like, you know, kind of like taking up the mantle, you know? And I've read about how, um, how some historians have pointed to witnesses, uh, like Japanese officers who confirmed that 
you know, the man that we're looking at is actually, you know, a guerrilla fighter that they fought with or that they engaged with and that he is who he says he is, like regardless of the name discrepancy, right? But I've also read the opposite. I've also read that the freedom fighter Il Sung died and that uh, this guy is just a Soviet stooge who they got the idea to pretend was Il Sung and after the real Il Sung died because Il Sung had a respected name and it would be easier to take control that way and like nobody knows who this guy is anyway because he was in China the whole time so it was just kind of easy to pretend, right? So what I think is important is that whether the fighter was actually the guy that we're talking about today or whether he took that name to elevate himself, I'm not particularly sure. But what I do know is that the significance of the name itself is an important cultural token for North Korea. And and I think that the weight that the name carries definitely helps lend legitimacy and respect to Kim, regardless if it was his actual name, a name he assumed, a completely different person altogether. That part almost doesn't matter, right? The point is that the name itself is what what brings him this legitimacy. And that's, I think, the important point. Hmm. So, yeah, it's more of like, almost like a title. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's confusing. I really don't. Maybe if I, just a Westerner per- perception, I guess. Um, but, so... Um, you know, despite these um, these these victories, though, in Manchuria, we're talking about these minor victories over Japanese police forces. They're most they're they're exaggerated. They didn't really make that big of a difference in the war effort at all. Um, they're more just stories to to um, you know symbolize hope for Koreans, and you know they they kind of get exaggerated. Now, um, they the these resistance fighters in Manchuria they're rooted out. They don't, they, the Japanese root them out and, um, they are driven into Siberia. So they link up with the Soviet Union. They link up with the, these guys who are fighting the Japanese. They link up with the Russians and, um, what the Russians do, what the Soviet Union does is that they, they basically absorb these Korean and these Chinese guerrillas into the Red Army. Now, Kim Il-sung, um, he is uh, one of these guerrillas, and he becomes an officer. I think he becomes a major, or captain or a major in the Red Army until, until the end of the war in 1945. So he actually serves in, in, you know, fight in the war for, you know, on behalf of the Soviet Union for, for about, about seven years or six years. Um, and then in the last, and this is where he builds his connections with like his strong connections and, and where I think, you know, he, he gets that, he, he's placed on that pedestal of being the guy to uh, run the country as a proxy. Um, now, in the last days of the war, the U.S. proposed dividing Korean, uh, the Korean Peninsula into, um, you know, two occupation zones. So there's a U.S. one, there's a Soviet one. Uh, with the 38th parallel as a dividing line, you know the 38th para- parallel is basically the modern day DMV. It's um, you know, DMZ. The, 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 <laughs> excuse me, the DMV. The DMV is even worse. <laughs> I don't know. What would, what would you rather do? Spend some time at the DMZ or the DMV? I don't know. I don't I'm know, thinking, man. Depends on how long. 
<laughs> I DMZ is DMV is my worst nightmare. And it's like it really is. My, my my experience getting my driver's license is like a traumatic experience. Just like the waiting, the like eight hour wait. Yeah, it's just a total nightmare. It's like <laughs> you've it's government at its worst. I think it's gov it's worse than like the carpet bombing of countries. <laughs> okay, you're taking it a bit farther. It's more. It's more. There's more <laughs> criminal activity. And then carpet, <laughs> carpet bombing countries in the DMV. That's Just funny. An eight-hour wait should not happen. It wasn't really an eight-hour wait. Probably like a four-hour wait. Um, but you had to wait. <laughs> and I failed my fucking first time, uh, my Britain test for my driver's license. <laughs> I get You get one answer wrong. It was like on a computer. And then if you mm -hmm. get one answer wrong, you fail. And I had to do right. it again. God, that was a fucking horrible experience. Um, so... Um, so 38th parallel, um, you know, we know that. Like, that's what divides the two nations. You know, turn off the lights um, at nighttime. Look at satellite pictures. You see the the uh, South Korea, it's industrial. There's lights everywhere. In North Korea, it's basically dark everywhere except Pyongyang. So we've all seen that. Now, um, after the Japanese officially surrender, the Soviets, they march into Pyongyang on uh, August 15th, 1945, and they occupy the northern half of, of the Korean Peninsula. The Soviets, they appoint Kim as the head of the Provincial People's Committee, which became the highest administrative power in northern Korea. And then, um, you know, it later on becomes the de facto government. Um, Kim sets up the Korean People's Army, so the KPA, the KPA, the KPA with a bunch of the veterans from Manchuria, and um, eventually, the uh, the uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea is established on September 9th, nineteen forty five. So about one month after World War II, that's when the nation is is uh, is is set, or one month after the Japanese surrender. And what the plan was was that Korea was going to have nationwide elections, so both North and South would be included in these elections. And, um, you know, the U.N. had planned, um, you know, the U.N. had planned these Korean elections. However, the Soviets had already recognized Kim as the premier of the entire Korean peninsula. So, um, you know, what, what eventually leads up to the war, and we're going to cover this in greater detail um, in, our, in our following episodes, but um, in 1940, or excuse me, 1950 in June, summer, Kim's able to convince um, Joseph Stalin and Mao that he was that he was ready to reunify Korea, and um, you know that's that's kind of how the the war starts. With the re you know the the goal was to make that just one nation state instead of it being divided by a U.S. half and a in a in a Soviet Union half, right? Essentially, right, and and. You know, not to get ahead of ourselves, because we'll talk about how the war begins, uh, you know, in future episodes here. But, you know, I think what's kind of important about this immediate period of, of Kim ascending, you know, to leadership is that he starts solidifying his control over Korea, you know, by establishing the Korea's Korean People's Army or the KPA. And he basically models it after the communist Soviet army. And he ends up recruiting 
and this is super important, all of these guerrilla and anti-Japanese freedom fighters, including those righteous army. Do you remember from previous episodes uh, we talked about this as like a ragtag group of folks that, you know, fought off the Japanese way back in like the, you know, the first, you know, uh, invasion, first Manchu invasions. And then again, later uh, in, uh, you know, in the occupation. So he starts gathering all these like freedom fighters and they're all battle hardened, as you as you pointed out before, uh, because they've been in so many conflicts that they fought in Korea and Manchuria and other parts of China, you know, in World War Two, you know, like you name it, like these guys have been fighting and he pretty, you know, pretty much sets up a really, really powerful, you know, military. And I think that definitely emboldens him, emboldens him to, you know, try to convince Stalin and Mao that he's ready to take over, you know. Uh, take Korea back by force. But, you know, he didn't do it alone. You know, Uh, I I give him credit for pulling in all these hardened, you know, uh, war veterans. But, you know, the reason why the KPA was so strong is because the Soviets heavily armed them, right? We're talking about modern weapons coming from the Soviets directly, like tanks and trucks and artillery and small arms, like, you know, guns and stuff like that. And they even set them up with an air force, uh, and the Korean pilots trained and uh, in secret in like Soviet Union and, and in China on how to fly MiG-15s. So, you know, they 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 were pretty modern and they, they were modernized very rapidly. So you, you take a group of hardened soldiers, people who have experience, combat experience, fighting Japanese, fighting invaders, fighting, fighting everybody really, right? And then you give them a bunch of the best guns and weapons and and tanks and planes and stuff like that. And you, you, you very quickly have a very powerful force, you know, and, 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 and you mentioned this already, but that's, that's when the Soviet Union eventually recognizes the North Korean government as the sovereign government of the entire peninsula. And before the, the war itself, they start consolidating the two major communist groups that were in North Korea. Uh, and then they, they, they fuse it into one, uh, one single unit that was headed up by Kim. And Kim basically does what all dictators do at this juncture. And he starts claiming all of the heavy industry, which we talked about before, right? This is all that heavy industry that was set up by the Japanese occupation, um, uh, by the Japanese. And, you know, he nationalizes it so that he can use it for his war machine. And this part is important when we talk about the two Koreas uh, in the lead up to the Korean War, because, you know, you know, flash forward, you know, the South actually didn't have a ton of heavy industry. And, you know, they were actually kind of a poor country uh, for a long time. You know, they definitely weren't the, the, the pinnacle of capitalism that we know of today. Um, so that was a, that, that's going to be an interesting conversation when we get to that later. But, you know, Kim does a bunch of other stuff too. So he, he starts redistributing a bunch of land that's suitable for agriculture. I think it was like 50% of all the land that can be used for agriculture gets redistributed. So in true communist fashion. And he also implements like workers reforms, like the eight hour workday. You know, he, he sets up nationalized healthcare for the whole country, you know, for, and, and this is the part that kind of surprises me a little bit because, you know, for an uneducated guy, he does really make a lot of good moves in the beginning early on. Um, but of course I, I suspect that a lot of this was probably dictated by the Soviet union or Chinese influence, you know, um, but I got to give him credit. You know, he, def- he definitely, you know, 
one way or another. He, he got shit done in the beginning. And, you know, but, but what is, what is interesting and, and a thread that I want to follow, you know, in later episodes is that what wasn't dictated by the Soviet Union was this cult of personality that he begins forming. You know, this is, as you pointed out, Henry, this is where all the great statues of, of, of Kim start getting built. And, and it's also where, when he starts formally going by, you know, all those silly titles that he has, like great leader Kim, right? Um, and I think what's important about this is that while he's building up this powerful North Korea with all the right things, like a strong military and a strong economy and strong workers, you know, um, rights and, you know, uh, healthcare and so on and so forth, he also starts laying the groundwork pretty early for North Korea's fall from a strong economy to a to what basically is a despotic, impoverished nation. Give me a second. Someone in the background? It's, it's just super the, annoying. Was that so, your yelling neighbor? No, dude. In, in, no. in Puerto Rico, they have these trucks, these political trucks. And it's just like a like a fucking Toyota Hilux with giant speakers on them, and they just drive around the town talking political messages. Wait, what? I'm going to keep this in the podcast. I'm not going to edit this out. Okay. Because <laughs> it's interesting. What the fuck? <laughs> what? Why? That's Why? what's going on right now. There's, it's just a, it's a truck. I'm trying to figure out what they're saying. I think they're talking about a, an upcoming voting date. That's that's oh. interesting. So so that's that's just how they get the word out. They they literally have like a like a pickup truck with these giant speakers on them, and they just roll through town with a pre-recorded like political message. It's so wild. Such a most trip. people don't have TVs. No, I mean, everyone has TVs. TVs. Right? Everyone has TV, radio, you know, internet, you name it. But this is like the vestiges of this old uh, of like old politics in Puerto Rico that just uh, hasn't yeah. died. You know? It sounds like it sounds like something that probably was introduced in like the fifties or sixties. Hundred percent. Like they can't roll it back. Nope. <laughs> no, it's just so incredibly just popular. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, back to North Korea. Okay, so um, what was I saying? So, he, you know, he built up this awesome North Korea, and then later on, he, you know, he starts laying this groundwork for what I believe, you know, brings Korea down because, you know, he starts to shift away from the original communist ideals that gave North Korea this awesome head start over South Korea. And he shifts towards this weird and perverted cult of personality that is ruled by, frankly, a narcissist, you know, with no education. So, yeah, that's that's a thread that I want to pursue in the future. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting that here's an interesting um, dynamic between North and South Korea and I've already stated this a bunch of times, but I think it's just fascinating to point this out that um, South Korea did not pass North Korea economically until the late 1970s. Yep. So there was a 20-year period, a 30, 25-year period after World War II where South Korea was very impoverished too. It was ran by a military dictatorship. Um, Mm -hmm. It wasn't like creating squid games you know what i mean right no k-pop like no no k-pop and now it's like um 
You ever see the um, you ever see the movie Hot Shots Part Two? Uh, no. Or Hot Shots with Charlie Sheen. Yeah, I saw the first one. Yeah. The pr- the president, so the guy who's like who's like the general in the first one becomes the president in the second one. Mm-hmm. And the second one is like the it's a big parody on um, on Saddam Hussein and the Iraq War. Okay. It's the first Iraq War, the Gulf War. It's very mm-hmm. funny. It's a parody on Rambo too. Um, but um, the guy, the guy who plays the president, who's very much like Joe Biden, like he reminds me of Joe Biden so much. <laughs> he's just like this goofy old man. He, um, he's like uh, talking about the Japanese. He's like, seems like he's like just seems like yesterday I was ravaging your homes, and now it's just now I'm begging you to stop building such good cars. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, or um. This kind of like in Korea, it's like it seems like just yet. Yeah, I guess for people who are older, or for, if you have a longer view on history, it's like it seems like just yesterday that you know this was a poor and impoverished country, and now, I mean, think of all that. Yeah. Now they make awesome cell phones and TVs and shit. South Korea, <laughs> yeah. What's that? Now they make awesome cell phones and TVs and shit. <laughs> now they make TVs, computers, appliances, cars. They make everything. Like yeah. they, they and, and really good f- Netflix content. Yeah, they make art shows like they really um, are a very strong. They're one of the strongest countries economically in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Seoul is like a magnificent city. It's um, it's really crazy. It's it's just the the it's like a, a progress comparable to like the, the Meijing Restoration. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. It's like South Korea just went on hyperdrive, like. Yeah. They just built this economy, this this really complex economy with these um, with these finished goods. You know, they're not like some countries. A lot of countries stay poor, like Russia, for example. Russia stays poor because Russia doesn't. It's just, you know, it's served. You know, it's kind of derogatory in a way to say this. Um, maybe you could take it as derogatory, but like, you know, a lot of people in our government or in the mainstream press, they'll just say Russia is a big gas station. Like you've heard that term, like oh, Russia is a gas station that masquerades the country. That's right. not true. That's little. That's, that is hyperbolic. But there is um, some truth to it. Like you know, their economy is based off exporting natural gas to Europe. They don't really have you know. They're, they're really not doing anything else, like yeah. appliances. You know, they're not getting anything Russian made. You know, I was like, for example, like you know, Germany. I was in. Um, I went. I was skiing last weekend, and you know, my skis are built. From, they're made from Germany. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, you're not getting, like, these complex items. What they do build over in Russia, though, is S-400s. Like, they yeah. have the Weapons. capability to yeah. build these ridiculous items. Well, but Russia's are, a two-trick are, pony, that's why. Gas <laughs> and weapons. Gas and security. Um, man, I saw this re- this video online of a, of a Sioux flying probably about, like, 10 feet from the uh, maybe... Maybe like twenty feet from the from the ground, like just mm-hmm. almost like what, just like this, whipping around. Yeah, they're just crazy whipping around. I'm like, this is insane. Um, but yeah, I mean that's something I want to touch on. Like the later on, like how like the, after the war and how South Korea developed as an economy for sure, and how North and have Korea a- turned into the you know the despotic nightmare that i mean i haven't i haven't done enough research on this particular point but i've learned enough at this point where i'm starting to formulate an opinion and that is that you know where i think 
what I think might have happened, and I might change my mind by the time we do an episode on this, but from right now, my unfiltered opinion is that, you know, North Korea started with this leg up, gets backed by the Soviets, gets all this weapons, you know, uh, and starts doing communism the right way, like how a lot of people want to say that communism was never done the right way, but then it gets corrupted really quickly through this cult of personality and this, this, you know, this narcissism that Kim Il-sung had and that his, you know, uh, his, uh, 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 the people that came after him, Kim Jong-il, definitely, right? And and to a certain extent, Kim Jong-un. Um, whereas on the other side, you know, South Korea starts off with not a whole lot, right? They didn't have the heavy industry. They did have the backing of the United States, but it was like a milita- like a corrupt military dictatorship that was run, you know, largely by you know, Japanese collaborators and, and many other despotic peoples. Um, but they kind of reversed it and they said, all right, well, we're going to shake off these despots so that we can, you know, uh, prosper and, and, and be a strong nation, you know, and they went in the opposite direction. And I think, you know, that's in part, you know, we've said this before, but why, why the South Korean government is very allergic to corruption because they have had yeah. many run-ins with it, you know? And so really, they'll throw, they'll throw you in jail, like in South yeah. Korea, if you're a corrupt politician. And I like that. Like I, yeah, I me too. like, like um, you know, I always I, I I like it when people throw their politicians in jail for corruption. It's uh, it gets me uh, pumped up. Absolutely, and I, I think I think that's really the the key differentiator. It wasn't necessarily the the start conditions or the support that they received from you know from external forces. It's really the internal conditions, right? And the and the leadership that is behind them. And it just goes to show you, in my opinion. At this point, you could start with all this awesome stuff, but if you're a piece of shit leader, you're going to run it into the ground. Well, here, here's the thing, though, and this is the consequence of every communist government. It'll, the communist government requires the cult of personality leader, and all of, all of the communist governments that we know of have all produced leaders. That like we know Kingdom. of, but if you read so, Marx, if you read Marx, you know, they spe- he, Marx and Engels, they specifically like warn against the cult of personality they 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 push against that they don't want that to happen but for whatever reason because when you when you distill so much power you know into into central authorities then that's what's happening that's what ends it's, that's the, the, it's end the inevitable result. consequence right of like because you know you Mal, such a strong Mal central Pot, government yeah yeah like mal polpot shishescu um um you know matt like Mao had the same cult of personality, same mm-hmm. uh, Castro, same uh, ca- yeah Castro, and it's like mm-hmm. you know some of these guys are like you don't really know how devout communists they were, you, you know I I have like my I think that Castro I, I don't really think he started out as a devout communist he was more of a devout imperial like a lot of these people just start out as devout imperialists like mm-hmm. I think Mao was an actual devout communist. He might um, have been, yeah. Mao and Lenin and those guys. Um, I think like Ho Chi Minh, um, 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 even even Kim. I think they started more out. It's just like, yeah. But in in the case of Kim, I I don't. <laughs> sorry for for you know being elitist and calling him out on not having an education. But something gives me the opinion that he didn't really read Marxism. <laughs> he didn't really read Marx. 
Well, most I think in Asia specifically, like the 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 communism to most of like the folk who 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 uh, subscribe to it, it was it was really just an anti-colonial um, mm-hmm. um, um, ideology that meant like share the wealth more, like right. more resources for everyone. Because we're talking about countries that were, um, you know that. Korea specifically, you know, and we touched on this in, in our earlier episode on on the, the rise of like the Korean state. I forget what even what we called it. Early Korean history. There was like a very there was that dynamic of a land aristoc like you know these landowner aristocrats and then the peasant class. Right. Um, very similar to like what Russia was like um, in Tsarist Russia was like where there was this large peasant class and. Um, China too. There was a very large peasant class, and that's how Mao was able to um, kind of re-subvert, you know, reorganize or recalibrate, uh, you know, Marxist um, ideology from like mm-hmm. labor, like organizing labor strikes and labor mu- unions and stuff like that to like right. shared uh, farm crop resources, which is a disaster. Whenever mm-hmm. you do that, that is a biggest mistake you can ever do is like these these um farm collective where yeah the collective farming where they um you know people like lie about what they produce and stuff and shit and there end up being almost like guaranteed famines um it's a huge mistake it never works out they the china they were basically um there was so much like fuckery going on with those collective farms with like people lying about what they produced and just so many bad decisions that you know, people were starving, and and there were like cannibal raids on mm-hmm. other other collections. Like, so it's it's bad. But um, yeah, like I guess you can just say that you know, even if Marx didn't say said warned against it, um, you know, creating these centralized states, these strong centralized states, um, inevitably leads to a cult of personality like Ceausescu or or Lenin or Stalin or Kim or or uh, whoever or just name that name that dictator. Um, but let's explore this more. I think it's an interesting thing and, and, uh, I'm always, I'm always eager to change my views on stuff. So maybe we will. Um, so, um, let's wrap this up. We're almost an hour and 20 minutes in. Is there anything else you want to add? No, man. Excited for the next one. So yeah, next episodes, um, we're kind of in a flow with this North, this Korea episode. Let's just say if something huge happens in the news, internationally um obviously big news stories are russia ukraine and um there's an escalation in in yemen maybe if something something happens um maybe we'll do an episode on that before doing our next north korean episode our next korean war episode but um next history episode will be on um on um you know the south korean angle of this and um after that we'll get into the actual war which everyone's probably been waiting for the actual conflict, the war, right? And then um, I want to cover like the American side of it, and and um, even like the kind of like the political. I I want to get into like the political side in America, like the mm-hmm. the debates over it in in the United States, and um, talk about like a a part of history that's not really talked about, and that's the split of the American right at that time. Hmm. Like the and, and I think you'll find this interesting. Like yeah. it's like the American right, the the old right, and and how it kind of got morphed into like the neoconservative um, national review right. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's a good place to tell that story in the context of the Korean War. For sure. So um, there's a, this, this could be a lot of episodes, man. It seems like the more we do this, the more we're like, fuck, we need to do an episode on this. We need to do an episode on that. So <laughs> yeah. who knows how long this series will be, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be doing other stuff as well. So I hope you guys are enjoying it. Um, if you like the show, rate and review the podcast. It is the number one way to support our show. Rate it if you are on Apple. Rate it if you are on Spotify. Number one way to do it. And um, if you want to support us and join our Patreon, just go to the link in the notes, Bro History Patreon, where you get access to our Slack account. And our Slack account is a fun place where you we continue the conversation and we you know we we're talking daily to our listeners and we developed a really great community where uh, we do like continued uh, news coverage and stuff like that. It's awesome. I really enjoy it. So uh, join us there. And then um, anything else, Danny? No, man. All right. Let's put on some more North Korean propaganda music. Peace. Peace.